Good afternoon. From Northern California, I'm in my backyard, in the warmth of my backyard this afternoon for another piece of The Lady in Gold, the extraordinary tale of Gustav Klimt's masterpiece, Portrait of Adele Blockbauer by Anne Marie O'Connor. This piece is called The Empress. I think I might do two because they're short. This first one is The Empress. Klimt had a well-known aversion to scripture, but he loved religious symbolism and considered art the source of an almost religious truth. So that December of 1903, he made an aesthetic pilgrimage to Ravenna, an ancient Roman capital and Adriatic port, to study the 6th century mosaics, the greatest legacies of Byzantine art outside of Constantinople. Klimt's footsteps echoed on stone floors as he walked through the octagonal San Vitale Basilica and gazed up at the gleaming murals. The golden tiles of Byzantium and had dazzled Europe. Gold symbolized the primeval power of the sun, and in the Christian world it represented the divine. Gold tile was reserved for potent potentates or potentates? Potentates? I don't know. And early Christian saints. Potentates? Potentates. I don't know. I'm going to have to look that word up. Uh, I know I've seen it before, but just not really pronounced it in a reading before. Okay. Klimt beheld the age-old stories of Cain and Abel, of Moses and the burning bush, of the sacrifice of Isaac, no, no, of the sacrifice of Isaac and of the twelve tribes of Israel. The Lamb of God was flanked by a kaleidoscope of peacocks, flowers, and fruit. Jesus Christ, in a rich purple robe, offered his martyr's crown to St. Vitale. As Clint drank in the explosion of color, his eyes wandered to Empress Theodora, glowing against golden tiles that shimmered like a halo above her head. Remarkable Theodora portrayed by disapproving 6th century historians as a stage actress, a courtesan, an infamous woman. Whatever her common origins, one civil servant praised her as surpassing in intelligence all men who ever lived. Theodora had already been another man's mistress when she met Justinian, the son of the emperor. Justinian defied royal opposition and married her anyway. Theodora was unable to bear him children, but she was skillful. She was a skillful military strategist with a canny ability to foil intrigues and plots. When Justinian became emperor, In the year 527, he made Theodora an unusually powerful empress 
neither did anything without any no neither did anything without the consent of the other grumbled the historian Procop- Procopius who defamed Theodora as a powerful as a power hungry concubine Theodora began to push for laws that eroded the chattel uh, status of women She fought the widespread kidnapping of women into prostitution. She pushed for laws against rape, for women's rights to hold property and to inherit. Theodora was credited with helping to elevate the legal status of women to unprecedented levels. She herself became one of the most powerful women in the Byzantine age. The Eastern Orthodox Church made unlikely saints of this powerful couple, granting Theodora the immortality behind, beheld by Klimt as he stood before her. These mosaics of unbelievable splendor were nothing short of a revelation, Klimt wrote. This was the image that scholars suspect was the inspiration for Klimt as he began to plot his golden portrait of Adele as a painted mosaic and his subject as a fallen icon. Now that is the end of that. How many minutes? It's only been five minutes. I'm going to go to the next section and it's called Degenerate Women. The ongoing portrait made Adele and Fernandad, Fernanon, Fernand, Fernand, Fernand. Oh my gosh. If I don't get anything right this whole book, it'll have to be that word. By the end of this book, I hope I can pronounce that properly. I'm out here in the back corner of my yard now. Trying to find a place where I could sit comfortably. I don't have a chair back here. I'd like to hear the birds. Okay, here we go. The ongoing portrait made Adele and Fernandad, Fernand <laughs> full partners in the secession. It put Adele in the company of some of the most remarkable women. I don't know if that just stopped my recording. Got a phone call. Hi. Okay, let's start this chapter one more time. Degenerate women. The ongoing portrait made Adele and Fernand full partners in the secession. It put Adele in the company of some of the most remarkable women of her time. Art patronesses, journalists, and intellectuals. And somebody's flying a jet into our little airport that shouldn't be doing that. That's illegal-ish. <sighs> Adele had a haven from had a haven from the confines of her sheltered family life in a milieu in which she could freely exchange ideas about such things as Freud's theories that human consciousness could be broadened by examining unconscious dreams and fantasies. I can tell our state is starting to open up in this Sorry, a little aside here. I think I might go inside for the last piece of this. But I think our state is starting to open up. We had our governor come out this morning, or this afternoon, and 
tell us tomorrow gets we get the big news of which businesses are going to be opening. And I think people are already already flying down the road. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Okay, I'm going to sit in my studio space because that was just a bit too much for me. All the noises. All right, so here we are back at the text. And they just ex broadened by examining unconscious dreams and fantasies. Adele was immersed in a serious program of studying, of study reading, study, reading philosophy and political texts. Every morning after Fernand, Fernand <laughs> headed to the sugar factory at the castle town of Brockenderlitha, Adele sat down to devour classic works of French, German, and English literature. She studied art, medicine, and science. Removed from the enforced conformity of university classrooms in which women were still unwelcome, Adele began to develop a highly individual point of view. She came to believe that insight could not be taught, but had to be discovered through a personal quest similar to Klimt's artistic voyage interieur. She cannot receive, you cannot receive knowledge or high literacy from a high school education, nor from the university professors, Adele would write years later. You, had to per, you have to proceed with open eyes and an iron will to become thoroughly educated. Only the person who places the highest demands on himself can progress one step further, she believed. Self-satisfied individuals are incapable of development. Adele's association with Klimt propelled this intellectual journey by making Adele a member of an elite sorority. One of Klimt's allies was Berta Zuckerkandl, a young journalist whose salon of artists and intellectuals hosted the first conversations by a small group of moderns that led to the creation of the secession. Berta considered Klimt a great man who lived by the truth of his own soul. Berta was a woman with unusual clout. She was the daughter of Moritz Seps, the Viennese newspaper editor who had been a confidant of the ill-starred crown prince. As a teenager, Berta had traveled with her father, meeting Disraeli, Disraeli and future prime, French prime minister, Georges Clemenceau, whose brother Paul would marry her sister Sophie. Berta, a keen observer of political and cultural currents, was becoming known as the Viennese Cassandra. Berta was married to Emil Zuckerkandl, a pioneering anatomist at the University of Vienna Medical School. Emil was then arguing for the admittance of women to the School of Medicine. The school dean, however, had a different view. He said that Emil, as an anatomist, should know perfectly well that women's brains were less developed than those of men. Berta and Emil privately rolled their eyes and snickered, but the school administrators were deadly serious. Emil cleverly pronounced that female doctors had become a matter of imperial urgency. 
They were needed to treat Muslim women in the former Ottoman-ruled regions of Bosnia and Serbia. Emperor Franz Joseph agreed. Emil quickly called in a protege, bright young Gertrude Bien. She passed the entrance exam, and under the reluctant gaze of the university administration, Emil escorted Fräulein Bien into an anatomy class. She was ordered to sit in the last row, ask no questions, and wear men's clothing so she would blend in. Shock settled over the room, then murmurs as the young man realized that Er Bien was Fräulein. Emil had to call security to escort hecklers from the hall. Emil and made Froline Bien his assistant. In a few years, young Dr. Bien was Vienna's first female pediatrician and a member of Adele's growing circle. Berta's salon was a magnet for Viennese who were fascinated by the latest trends in psychology, politics, and art. Visitors like Auguste Rodin dropped in, and playwright Arthur Schnitzler watched Klimt pursuing women like a fawn there, like a fawn there. Adele's friend Alma got to know her future husband, Gustav Mahler, at Berta's salon. Johann Strauss, a regular, had fallen to his knees and gratefully proclaimed her the most marvelous and witty woman in Vienna. If art was a way to liberate minds, salons gave unusual women the social support to exercise aspirations that would not have been welcomed by Vienna institutions. They offered an alternative to stuffy circles closed to Jewish women by anti-Semitism and sexism. But what gave salons gravitas was the fact that in the days before mass media, salons were indispensable to the spread of ideas. The fashion sense of the women in Adele's circle was set by Klimt's sister-in-law and companion, Emily Floge, a dress designer and an early Vienna career woman. Floge's fashion house freed Floge's fashion house freed women from the confines of corseted Victorian dresses. She replaced them with loose caftan style dresses that allowed women to move comfortably and were something of a feminine counterpart to the tunic worn by, worn by Klimt. Klimt and Floge sometimes collaborated on the design of women's dresses, giving the clothes added cachet. For women in Adele's circle, the unfettered style of Floge's designs was a symbol of their liberated lifestyle. Other constraints were more difficult to elude. Adele's friend Alma had made an enviable marriage with the composer Gustav Mahler and had not waited for the wedding to consummate the union. But Mahler had demanded before they wed that his fiancée abandon her ambitions to be a composer. During their courtship, Mahler wrote, A husband and wife who are both composers, how do you envisage that? envisage that I was going to say envision but it's envision is envisage that such a strange relationship between rivals do you have any idea how ridiculous that would appear can you imagine the loss of self-respect it would later cause us both if a time when 
you should be attending to household duties or fetching me something I urgently needed, or if, as you wrote, you wish to relieve me of life's trivia, if at such a moment you were befallen by inspiration, what then? From now on, you have only one vocation, to make me happy. You must give up your give yourself up to me unconditionally, making the shaping of your future life in all its facets dependent on my inner needs and wish nothing more in return than my love. Ambitious women were policed by stigma. They were brazen, unnatural, mad, or even, or in Freudian terms, hysterical, or simply irrelevant. Fellow intellectual Karl Kross derided Bert. Berta Zuckerkandl as a cultural chatterbox. In more conservative circles, women whose behavior violated feminine nature were labeled with a fashionable new term, degenerate. Women who pushed for higher education were degenerate. Women who agitated for the right to vote were, were having a degenerate women's emancipation fit. A best-selling book of the era, Otto Weininger's Sex and Character, spelled out the social punishments for female individualism. The sexual impulse destroys the body and mind of the woman, Weininger wrote. Women lack the capacity not only of the logical rules, but of the functions of making concepts and judgments, he believed. A real woman never becomes conscious of destiny or of her own destiny. Passivity was not just a virtue for women, it was a natural state, and waiting for a man is simply waiting for the moment when she can be completely passive. There is no female genius, and there never has been, said Weiniger. Normal women, in his view, have no desire for immortality. In a hypocritical society, hostile to women in general and fearful of female sexuality in particular, Klimt's studio was a haven of sensuality for women whose most elemental feelings and aspirations were pathologized as degenerate. The degenerate label was soon applied to the artists and composers whose Klimt, whom Klimt, sorry, the degenerate label was soon applied to the artists and composers whom Klimt's female patrons supported. The degenerates babble and stammer instead, instead of talking, sneered Max Nordau of the new free press. They draw and paint like children who with useless hands, dirty tables and walls. They make music like the yellow people in Asia. They mix together all artistic genres. The racially loaded culture wars of turn of the century Vienna were on. It was only a matter of time before degenerate would be aimed at Jews. Turn of the century Vienna was governed by opposing forces. As artists and intellectuals pushed ahead with new ways of seeing, giving birth to Austrian modernism, the old Vienna, conservative and hit hidebound, pushed back. Innovation from Klimt was met with hostility. The rise of Jewish patrons was heckled by persistent anti-Semitism. In another generation, these reactionary forces would prevail absolutely in a crushing triumph. And that is where I will end today's reading. I hope you're enjoying this book. It's very interesting. We are now at the top of page 50 if you're following along in a book.
All right. Until next time, thanks for listening.